1: I mean, I mean, I might as well say it, right? Um, uh, but like, we always coordinate our clothes. Um, I I feel uh, like
2: this is a, how it started, not how it's going.
1: Yeah, no, I mean,
2: <laughs> with the hair and the beard, like it's like how it started, like how it's going. It's just like it's perfect. Uh,
1: yeah. So, so I would just say that when Scott's first talk at the University of Michigan. He said, hi, I'm Scott Hershewitz. The other legal philosopher is Scott Shapiro. The way you will can distinguish the two is that Scott says about himself, I'm handsome Scott and he's Haggard Scott.
0: <laughs> I, I, I was trying to displace wow. a convention that was growing up at the law school where he was being called Big Scott and I was being called Little oh, Scott. Okay. And, and I just <laughs> thought like... Like handsome and haggard is actually going to be an easier way to sort us out going forward.
1: Yeah, and also I was. uh, Right, I I was. Even I may look haggard now, um, although I think right now it comes off as uh, rugged and um, wise. Um, But when I was younger, I um, I was very haggard because I did not get much sleep and I hated being a parent. Um, So, oh, speaking of that. Um, I, I, Speaking I think... of
2: that, uh, we didn't, let me introduce, everyone remembers, hopefully, uh, Scott Hershewitz. He's been on the show before, um, but we promised to have him back when his book came out. It is now out. You should go buy it. Nasty, brutish, and short, Adventures in Philosophy with my kids. It is charming and tender. I'm not all the way through it, but he wrote an incredible New York Times up-ed piece that was a shortened version of it, or it was just really sweet and, like, lovely. Um, and uh, yeah, so welcome back on the show. Thank you for coming on um, and talking about your book. Um, I don't know where do you guys want to start. I would love to start selfishly with basically how you came up, how like how you did this, managed to do this so well given that everyone kind of has kids and has yeah. this kind of moment where they're like, my kids teach me everything I needed to know about my field, my life, my whatever. But you, you do this excellently. It's not derivative. It's not, it's like not, it's not like that. So I kind of am curious, like, how did you get over actually that hump? Like, this is the type of thing that I would like say to myself, like, oh, someone, somebody's done this. There has to be yeah. like, right. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's like mainly that I just took my kids seriously. Right. So lots of lots of people have that moment where their kid has said something cute or their kid has said um, something that's really striking. And I just I just treated my kids very often like they were students in my class. Right. Like I would tell them about the cases I teach. and We have conversations about them. Or if one of them said something at dinner, like I wonder if I'm dreaming my entire life. I just took that as an invitation to start up the same conversation I'd have with my students about Descartes and skepticism. So I think I think that's um, I think that's something that helped a lot. I mean, but like sort of the the origin story of this book comes in stages. I had kids and very quickly discovered that I was talking about them all the time in class. That Like if you were doing like if like the topic of the day was theories of punishment, it was much better to get a conversation started if I told them about something, told my class about something one of the boys had done and asked them how I ought to respond than to start with whatever. You're like,
2: I, and I left him in the closet and he's still there and I'm teaching you.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I had I had moments which are not in the book where I definitely did things that would not be supported by any plausible theory of punishment. Um, so, uh, you know, um, uh, I didn't, I don't think I ever left somebody in a closet. Uh, Although our our oldest Rex is actually like preternaturally good at hide and seek. And uh, he he, like, um, he can hide. Because he
2: like physically can like fit himself into weird spaces or because he's very clever or like because he's actually a chameleon and can (laughs) look
0: look like a leaf or something, So he's he's bigger now. We haven't done it in a long time. He's 12. But when he was younger, like he could fit himself into weird spaces, but he was really committed to the bit. So like... (laughs) he would hide extraordinarily well. And then no matter how much you pleaded with him to reveal his location and told him that he will, that he had won, he would not come out of hiding. So there was a day when we knew that he had not left our house, but we actually became at some point like distraught that we could not locate him. He was like three or four, we thought like something bad has happened to this child. And he was um, in, his, I thought of the story because he was in his closet in his laundry basket under his clothes and like so well hidden that I had been in his closet multiple times and like right even rifled through the laundry basket a little bit and not discovered the child and he simply did not say anything or even like audibly breathe. we also had an incident like at a botanical garden where he watched like multiple adults and children running through, screaming his name, looking for him with glee because he thought he was succeeding at, at like hiding himself. He was winning the game. So. Did,
1: did you not? Did I mean, obviously you had a discussion about like at a certain point when I say you really have to come out. And what, what did, did he say? Yes. Or did he say, no, I'm, I'm that game is that?
0: He the second he he thought like the game is you have to find me.
2: I mean, like, did you uh, Rex is a very clever name as like a legal like philosopher. It's like very cute. But did you think of Waldo? Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) We didn't know this about him when we uh, when we had him. Yeah, so tricky. The central (laughs) the central question that philosophers of law have is actually whether. Rex's name is inspired by the concept of law, um, because the the yeah. the key that one of the, one of the key examples in the in Hart's critique of Austin involves imagining a king named Rex, and then his child uh, Rex the second. And uh, and I remember Scott I, like our, our view is no, this is not how we came up with the name Rex. But Scott actually told me once many years ago that I simply didn't know my own mind. It, uh, yeah,
2: read thy, like read thyself. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so like...
1: I mean um, the, uh, the the I mean the the name of your other child is the internal point of view. Um, so <laughs> I, so I, that's why I think that there's a heart concept of law connection but okay i
2: I love this okay so i i I got us completely off topic i apologize but like but this is also kind of charming and lovely and i think self-illustrating what you basically said which was that you were using stories to draw about your kids to draw people in (laughs) like and (laughs) yeah you got me
0: (laughs) you know and then of course over time it was um I was, I wasn't just telling these stories around my students. I was telling these stories around my colleagues and there was a kind of like two stage origin story for this book. One was I was out at UC Irvine presenting a paper about jurisprudence and I just could not get people to see what the issue was. And so I started telling a story about the, uh, our younger one, Hank and arguments we've had about what the rules of our house are. And, uh, and immediately people got it. And then Aaron James, who's a philosopher there who wrote a really phenomenal book called assholes, a theory leaned across the table and said, that's your book, write that. So Aaron was the first person to plan the see, but I promised like the, the connection to Scott here is I carried around this thought then, oh, like I could do this bit. I could write about my kids as a way of introducing people to questions in philosophy for years until I met up with Scott for lunch in London. And I only knew two philosophers that had written trade books. I knew Aaron and I knew Scott. And so I said to Scott, hey, let me tell you about this idea I had. and uh, And Scott laughed throughout the lunch and uh, and was the first person that made me believe that I was onto something and then helped connect me to an agent. So uh, so that is why this book exists, is is lunch with Scott.
1: Yeah, I would just say, so can I just say, like most, uh, it, when somebody, when a fresh, uh, you know, an academic says, oh, you know, I wanna write a trade book or I'm thinking of writing a trade book or something like that, 99 times out of 100, they don't actually know how to write a trade book or what 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 human beings want to read Um, they, they think it's like i'll write like a philosophy book but i'll write it like you know with half the arguments or something it's it's not it's it's like to engage to engage um the general educated audience requires like a real skill you have to have um you have to have a lot of knowledge about a lot of things, and being able to write it in a certain way and connect it. And so, when Scott said, "Oh, we want to write a trade book thing about kids and philosophy," I just thought, "This is going to be a disaster." And as soon as he told me, I thought, "Holy Jesus, this is amazing!" Um, because um, I, um, in, in my household, uh, we read a lot of proposals, um, and um, you know, I just thought this is going to be brilliant Uh, and it turns out to be brilliant. I mean, it's really, I I have said this maybe on the show before, but it's not just like entertaining or funny or you'll learn a lot. It's a really good philosophy. That is like you will learn things about your own field that Scott writes about. So I I really, I think it's, it's like one of those very few books that are just, Like an absolute howling laugh, and also like really, really deep.
2: Um, So uh, I, I just I don't usually do this, but I wanted to read the part about the trolley problem.
0: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we love the trolley problem because we love
2: the trolley problem here. (laughs) Don't ask. Okay, I didn't. I did not know that. We're a weird bunch, Scott. Okay, yeah.
0: Let's throw down over the trolley problem.
2: We're fun at parties, though. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
2: uh, What is the answer to the trolley problem, Hank asks all the time. He's
1: used (laughs) used
2: to hearing about legal, you should, this is so charming. He's used (laughs) to hearing about legal cases since I tell him about the ones I teach. Tell me another case, my daddy, he says when he's bored. He knows that after a bit of back and forth about how he thinks the case should have come out, I'll tell him what the court decided. So ever since I first taught him the trolley problem, he keeps asking, what did the judge say? And he will <laughs> not accept my attempts to explain. The story is not real. He desperately wants to know the answer. This is like, are you sure he's not a wino? Like, I'm
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> I do too. But in philosophy, there's no answer key. You've got to work things out yourself as best you can. If you gave me an afternoon and a whiteboard, I'd try to convince you that Rex is wrong about Loop and Tom Thompson is too. I'd argue that the extra bit of track does make a difference. I'd throw new cases on the board and I'd defend a version of the Kantian idea that we're not allowed to use one person to save five. Once they'd wrap that up, I'd spring my surprise. In a roundabout way, our collection of cases sheds light on the debate about abortion if the state forces a woman to carry a pregnancy to term, it's using her body as a means to an end. That's not permissible, even when a life is at stake. Or so I'd argue, as I said, it would take a while. <laughs> and I just like, in making my case, I'd close the loop on the trolley problem. Trolleys were introduced to philosophy by an English philosopher named Philippa Foote in a paper about abortion. Thompson made trolleys famous by redefine, by refining Foote's story and introducing others. But the point was never to sort out what Derek Wilson or anyone else who works with trolleys should do when they're out of control. For philosophers, trolleys are tools for thinking about the structure of morality, for thinking about what rights we have, and when those rights yield to the needs of others. They're tools for thinking about serious issues like abortion and the laws of war. Imagine for a moment that you're Harry Truman trying to decide whether to drop an atomic bomb on the city of Nagasaki. The bomb will kill tens of thousands. It will shorten the war, saving many more. When are you permitted to kill some people to save others? That is an important question, and the trolley problem helps us think about it. If it seems silly to outsiders, that's because the trolleys crossed into popular culture without the serious question that called them forth. Trolleys may not matter much, but rights do. And I'm just like, and there I am being a fucking philosopher. And it started out to be this like story that you're, (laughs) like, it's just so good. I also, thanks. thanks. I just, it was, it just like was great. So, I mean, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, you know, like, that's the thing. So there's two, actually three things I want to say about the trolley problem in the course of that chapter. This is a chapter about rights um the the first is i I think a lot of people just don't even understand what the problem is which is to say they think you can get the problem going just with one story right The, the standard story of you've got a trolley heading down the track towards five workers but you're standing near a switch and you can throw the switch and divert it onto a track that just has one worker what would you do i think in popular culture a lot of people think that's the trolley problem but that's not the problem right most people feel like they've got a good grip on what they do in that circumstance, they pull the switch. The problem comes when you juxtapose that story with other stories, right? So then you've got like the heavy man who's standing on the bridge and the trolley's out of control. Would you push him off? And and most people now say, no, now we've got a problem because in each case it's kill one to save five. And the challenge is why the different answers. That's the first thing I'd like is just like a better under popular understanding of what the, Trolley problem is the second you mentioned obliquely this guy, Derek Wilson, who is my favorite, made my favorite contribution to trolleyology. Derek Wilson is or is is retired now. He was an engineer with a railroad in Canada, and he wrote an editor editor, a letter to the editor um, of the Globe and Mail many years ago, saying that the trolley problem was representative of the things people hate about philosophy classes. And actually, this is quite easy to solve. Derek Wilson says, you know, if the trolley's going slow enough, then, um, then uh, you can sound the bell and people will get off. That's if it's going under 15 kilometers per hour. If it's going f- between 15 and 30 kilometers per hour, you can throw the switch, and then you'll only kill one person. But if it's going over 30 kilometers an hour, Derek Wilson teaches us throwing the switch will cause it to derail, and so you better not, you better not throw <laughs> oh, the switch. Oh, well,
2: you fucking solved it! Thank you, Derek. <laughs> That's
0: right. Well, you know, um, uh, oh, we what, one of the things more I love
2: technology.
0: <laughs> I print Derek Wilson's in the book. One of the things I love about it is he's doing philosophy, he doesn't even realize. He's like, here, I hate philosophy. Here's the answer. But right. of course, he's just like utilitarian, but he's like counting up the number of people. And I really want to ask Derek, um, you know, what do you make of like pushing the guy off the bridge? Because I suspect he's a no. And then you just get the trolley problem up and going. And then the third thing is, of course, nobody actually cares about trolleys. Right? I, think, I think people imagine that philosophers are like really deep into the trolley question. And, uh, and, but of course that was never the point. The point is always, what leverage can we get over the question? When can you kill someone to save someone else?
1: Yeah. Um, so, um,
2: I'm grabbing a cup of coffee. I will be back in one second, but I can hear. So go ahead, Scott.
1: Yeah. Okay, now, now I forgot what I was gonna say. Right.
0: You know, I had to track Derek Wilson down to get permission to print that letter.
1: Oh really? I, the thing, is, I, right? I mean, there, there's a, there is a, there is a lot of. Well, here, okay. Let let us we start all the way at the beginning, okay? Yeah. Like, have you gotten to the point where somebody in a book, somebody from the audience, or you know, in a book talk or something, asks you, what? How do you define philosophy? Have you gotten to that point yet?
0: Um, you know, uh, I don't know if anybody has asked, like, you know, uh, if if you read the book, you'll see that this is a question that I struggled with for decades, right? Like, so one of the first stories I tell in the book is how I became a philosopher. And I came home, you know, after just having been at college for a few weeks and deciding that I wanted to major in philosophy. And I reported this to my father, who asked the sensible question, what's philosophy? Mm -hmm. And then I realized I had no answer to this question at all. That's
2: your sequel right there. (laughs) So so I, um,
0: so I I start, like, I I just have like, Oh, I'll show him rather than tell him. And I started to talk about brains and vats and like the matrix that hadn't come out yet. So this, this didn't even make sense to him. (laughs) And, uh, and and, like, as as I said in the book, like the look on his face was something other than encouraging. I did not leave (laughs) like this dinner feeling like I had a good plan for life, but I stuck with my plan like, despite my inability to explain what philosophy was, and then years later, I mean, decades later, um, Rex started second grade and he was uh, on the first day, the teacher went around the room. She asked each kid what they wanted to be when they grew up. And then they sent home a list. They didn't say which kid had which career ambition, but there were like firefighters and doctors and teachers. And like down at the bottom of the list, there was one math philosopher. And so I figured, well, that's my kid. Uh, (laughs) So so he comes home and I said, well, like Miss Kine says that you want to be a philosopher of math. What's that? And just like instantly he says, philosophy is the art of thinking. And I was like, I was blown away because this wasn't anything I'd ever said to him. Like I could never say anything that pithy. I had tried to explain, I think, in the past that philosophers are people who try to think of good questions and then answer them, which was like <laughs> as close as I could get to an explanation of what it is that we did, although it's not really unique to us, I suppose. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but he, tra- he transmuted that into uh, philosophy is the art of thinking. That's what I think it is.
1: But that's, that's, that's absolutely amazing. You know, um, John Campbell at Berkeley called philosophy, thinking in slow motion, which is a beautiful, yeah. is a beautiful I love expression. that and actually,
0: David yeah. Hills, who teaches at Stanford, um, sort of like maybe, uh, you know, imagining or, or, or prefiguring nasty, brutish and short, once said that philosophy is the ungainly attempt to answer questions that occur naturally to children, using the methods that come naturally to lawyers.
1: Oh, uh, ooh, nice. So, I, th- yeah. I mean, then that's perfect for you. Legal philosopher with kids. I yeah. Mean, dude, gosh.
0: And I think actually, I don't know if Scott, you think this is true. I think part of the answer to Kate's question of like, how do you pull this off? is I feel like working in an interdisciplinary field, like if you're a philosopher of law, hanging around a law school, the people that you work with don't always take what you do seriously. They don't see the point of the questions. And so you just become adept at, hey, first I've got to argue to you that you should be interested in this question. And I've got to find a way to put it that doesn't presume any technical knowledge. So I think like wow. working between fields helps a lot.
1: I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that the like what I work with my students so much is marketing. Like how do you present your ideas in a way that will I, so when I got my job at Michigan, I remember um, one person said, "We, we, we couldn't figure out what you did, but we were convinced that you knew what you did." Um, <laughs> we, 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 well, I'm trying
2: sure to think that being a philosopher is just collecting these really cute anecdotes.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we everyone thinks we're really cute. I mean, actually, um, um, who's who is it? Um, uh, the sociologist at Harvard wrote a book about how professors think um, um, I'm blanking at the name. Um, anyway, what, what she showed is that like, basically, when academics are all on panels, like on grand panels, everyone hates the philosopher. <laughs> like, they're, they're happy that they're there sometimes, but they kind of kind of don't like dealing with them because they're like, you know,
0: I think the other thing, so so I have a colleague in Michigan, Bill Miller, used to be Scott's colleague, too. Bill is an expert on revenge and actually sort of was a major character in the the second chapter in the book, which is about revenge. Uh, But Bill used to say at the beginning, he taught the most popular class in Michigan called Blood Feuds, about like Icelandic blood feuds. And Bill used to say at the beginning of that class, that he was uh, somebody who got stuck with the questions that like are interesting to a 12 or 13 year old boy, and had made a career out of them. And when I heard Bill say that, I thought to myself, Oh, I just got stuck earlier. Like, I've got the questions that like a four or a five year old has got, like, why do you get to boss me around? Or am I dreaming my entire life? Or? Um, yeah. And, and so I think philosophy is like, like the the point of the book is really to help people see that kids are really phenomenal philosophers for just this reason. Like they've got these kinds of like they're dropped into the world. They don't understand anything. They're puzzled by it. They're trying to puzzle it out. They don't know the standard explanations that people give, so they don't take anything for granted and they're thinking things through. And, and Scott and I, and lots of other philosophers just got stuck there.
1: Right. Fixated. We're fixated. It's like something happened and we never learned that saying, but why um, is really irritating to most people most of the time. <laughs> um, it's not It's not um, the most appealing to wh- whichever group you're trying to attract.
2: I took, um, so I'll tell you, what is really funny is that I have now decided that maybe I am kind of this weird version of a philosopher. And maybe I have some type of identity with this. I mean, maybe we all do. But... I'll tell you exactly what turned because I am the person who always asks why and why and why and why, but like um with a pragmatic bent, um also. Uh so that's also I'm very, like very pragmatic. So that's why I never kind of identified philosophy, which was always kind of sold to me as like being the non like it's not particularly pragmatic. Um, don't think I'm gonna be like making any, you know. Maybe I think that that's like an acknowledged thing, but then, when I took existentialism as a freshman year course at Brown, uh, that was the way that they trained you to write and the specific way you had to write philosophy papers was so Hmm. weird and stilted that I found it like, I just like, it was like, oh, this is like intuitively, I don't understand why I'm writing like this and it doesn't make any sense to me. And so I just, like i got to be in the class and i gave up i was like oh guess philosophy is not for me after all mm-hmm. and that was like i don't know i think that that's kind of like an interesting uh, yeah, yeah. I,
1: I yeah i mean that's a shame that's a failure but i think so, so much of your first
0: not. so much <laughs> of your first experience with like if you if you discover it in a class like some people are really good at making the subject come come alive and other people um, i think people that teach it topically tend to do better than people that teach it historically in generating interest. So, uh, but hopefully, Nasty, Bruce, and Short will be a lot of people's first uh, first exposure now. Well,
1: I, I, actually, no joke. I think that that will be true. I mean, I, I don't, because like I, I you, um, let's see, the topics that are covered in this book are, are really, it kind of run the gamut. Rights, revenge, uh, these are the chapters. Um, part one is making sense of morality, rights, revenge, punishment, authority, language making sense of ourselves, sex, gender, and sports, race and responsibility, making sense of the world, knowledge, truth, mind, infinity, God. So this is, um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. I, I would, uh, which, can I ask you what was the funnest chapter to write?
0: Oh, hands down, the funnest chapter was the language chapter, which actually oh, really? was not part of the original, was not part of the original plan of the book. It was just, um, my editor kept saying that I said, fuck too much in in the drafts and so like not just fuck like you know all all sorts of swearing you know she would uh she would want to come back and cut and uh and so um uh, two things happened uh one was um, with, with annoyance at that, I was like focused on the justifications for uh for swearing and the norms around them. And the other is I, I won't spoil the story in the book. Like hands down, I think the funniest story in the book is a moment when we discovered just how good Rex is at swearing. And um and so like so those two things were happening in our house simultaneously. I discovered that my my then, I guess, I think it was nine or, nine or ten, my then nine-year-old was like a phenomenally good swearer, and my editor was telling me not to swear. And actually I was like channeling my, my younger self because I remember being so puzzled that people thought these words were off limits and like they're just strings of sound, like how could that be bad? And, and I think there's actually answers to that question, but the chapter is a kind of like, well, wait a minute. Let's just think this through. Why are some words bad to say? Like is it really the case that we shouldn't say these words? And so the the front half of the chapter is kind of frivolous and fun. It's about swearing. The back half of the chapter gets more serious. It's about slurs, which I think like it turns out there are really words that you you shouldn't say. Um like fuck is is one of them only contextually and then slurs are words you really just ought to leave out of your out of your vocabulary.
2: Yeah, I think that's yeah. amazing. Actually, so Richard has a really specific question um, about gender, which is, I thought, awesome So I'm going to go to his question um, just because it was timely with kind of with with kind of going through the chapters of the book. But Richard, go ahead. I like your I mean, both your questions are excellent.
0: Thanks. Um, So I I was curious if you would have written a different sort of book if you had daughters. And,
1: And do you know if there are questions that girls tend to ask that boys just don't? And did you have yeah. readers prior to publication who discussed this with you?
0: Um, so uh, I assume that the book would have been different in some ways and similar in others, which is to say, like I say in the introduction, like you're gonna get in you're gonna get in uh, in uh you're gonna get a tour through philosophy, but like all the best tours, this one's a little idiosyncratic. It's got some stops that it would be on any tour, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like if you're raising kids, you're gonna have questions about punishment, you're gonna have like questions about like knowledge and truth right so i think there's some questions that just all kids will have and then some questions i think were more specific to my kids like the chapter on revenge grows up out of like a particular story about hank when he was three years old taking revenge on a preschool classmate and you know if if, if that hadn't happened if my kid had been different maybe that chapter wouldn't have been there you know i think like there, there is a chapter about sex and gender and I, I suspect that chapter would have looked different if i um, if I had girls, that, that chapter kicks off with um, the very first 5K that Rex ran when he was in second grade. Um, it was won, It was won by, well, uh, the, the first finish the first second grade finisher was a girl who uh, in the book I call Susie and uh, but she was also just the first she, she was the first finisher among all second graders, but there was a second grade boy that got a first place medal um because they were even at that age segregating by sex and so that chapter is um is about like why do we sex segregate sports should we do it for young kids should we should we do it for adults and then once you have the justifications in view how can that help us think about the eligibility of trans athletes um to participate in women's sports and, uh, you know, I think that I think I think like all those would, of course, be interesting questions if I had girls instead of boys. But I might have had like a different perspective on them or a different trigger for having for having written about them. But I, I suppose I don't know the fully answer the answer to the question of what are the you, you know like there, there was I, I do like like there, there was a point where I made an observation about the frequency with which um, my boys make like. Like farting jokes or jokes about their butt, and and then my editor was like, "Oh no, no, no. Like this isn't a boy thing. This is just a kid thing." And so, uh, so I did learn that about girls. Uh, it's it,
1: it, it's not just a kid thing. Um, but <laughs> um, we,
2: can't get, we can't get Scott to shut up about his butt. He's just that, like, "Oh my I,
1: god, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't play blue," um, but. Uh, um, can, um, yeah, yeah. That that chapter, especially on gender and sports and um, and trans kids, was actually very uh, not only extremely well argued, but it actually was. I thought it was so perceptive. I, that's a, that's another example of like this is really just really good philosophy. Um, can I can I ask you what
0: what was the hardest
1: chapter to write?
0: Um... I mean, if uh, it's really interesting like it, it, there are some chapters are hard in different ways. so the the chapter on consciousness, which is called mind, was really challenging to write just because the issues are so challenging, right? Um, even just getting um, even just getting like the basic question in view, like if you understand all the physics, there's still this question as to why anybody's having an experience at all. It's really hard to articulate the ideas. And um, uh, and actually the the central motivation for the chapter for for that chapter being the book wasn't a story about my kids. It was a story about me when I was a little kid Uh, that, you know, when I was uh, five, I think I was in kindergarten. My mother taught in a class, a preschool classroom down the hall. And I went running to her after class to say, I don't know whether I see red the same way that you see red. Is like something I've been thinking about all day, and she was like, "Of course you do. It's red." And we back and forth, like, and she never. And she was like, "See, that's red." And I'm like, I, "I'm like, I know that's red, but, but you told me that was red, so it could look, it, it could look to me differently than it looks." I was trying to explain to her, and she was not getting it. And so like actually aspiration, of the chapter was like, oh, like, could, could I write this in a way that my mom reads it? She's going to finally understand what the issue is like 40 years, uh, 40 years <laughs> I really later. did
2: get stuck. <laughs> like... Yeah. But no, that's amazing. Um, I yeah. I remember I always had a, an almost exact same conversation with my mother. I remember yeah. it very specifically. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. and I think there's a reason. So uh, it turns out lots of kids have this thought. And I think there's a reason that they do is because like you're you're like at that age, you're trying to like to learn to read other people's minds to like figure out what they're thinking so that you can interact with them. And then it turns out there's a limitation to that. Right. Like you can make pretty good guesses about like what their beliefs or what their intentions are, but like actually imagining yourself into how the world looks to them turns out to be something that you can't fully do. And it it turns out a ton of little kids figure that out and then totally forget about it as adults.
1: Yeah, I I wanna say that, um, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, when you, I, I can see, let me let me phrase this as a question to you scott because i thought of myself as like interested in philosophy very late um in fact i tried to i hated philosophy so much my freshman year of college i tried to transfer into engineering um uh, but then for various reasons i then came back to it later on in college did you did you were you interested in philosophy in high school
0: I didn't know what philosophy was at all until I got to college. I, uh, I remember registering for classes like back in the days of like bubble forms. Right. And, uh, you know, like uh, and it turned out the introduction to psychology was full. And I had put like introduction to philosophy as an alternate course because it fulfilled some sort of requirement. And uh, and my professor, Clark Wolf, um, who now teaches at Iowa State, was just phenomenal. Um, at uh, bringing people into the conversation. So like the very first day of this class, he just started with the question of like, hey, like, what do you think really matters? And as people went around the real, like a big question, right, like as people went around the, <laughs>
1: yeah. Whoa, what a... Not cutting corners. Wow. Yeah, really, nope. I mean, that's almost TMI. I mean, almost, I mean, not exactly, but like, tell me what matters. Wow, that's that's a phenomenal question.
0: And so people went around the room and they were giving answers. And some people were like, oh, like being happiness, happiness matters. And wow. if like Kate had said happiness, he would start writing on the board. He'd be like happiness. And then he'd be like Aristotle, Kate, right? He just like <laughs> was putting people into this conversation, right? Wow. So like, you know, like really, like doing the right thing. And he's like, Kant, Scott. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and it just like, it, it just had this like, um, it was just very welcoming it was just like y- you have views and you're going to be like talking to these famous people through history like i think by the end of the first hour i thought i'm going to do more of this yeah oh,
1: that's i, I awesome. my, yeah yeah, yeah really. i i that that sense of like n- not being able to explain to somebody about what you do or not, in, in particular not being able to explain to your parents what you do I, is actually a very dominant Thing in in my relationship with my father, so like it's not under. So when I was in grad school, I was working on the philosophy of probability. My father was a an engineer, and he and and he once he was driving. We were, I was in grad school. We were driving the car, and he said to me, Scott, what what field of philosophy do you do? And I was just shocked that he was interested. And I said, I work in decision theory and the philosophy of probability. He goes, Oh, I said. Why do you ask? He goes, Well, somebody in the car, in the carpool asked uh, what field in philosophy your son studies. And I said, I didn't know philosophy had fields. And so, and so I asked you, and they said, What is philosophy probability? I was like, OK, take you have a coin, and you flip a coin, and one is a fair coin, equal probability of heads or tails. The other one is an unfair coin. It's like strongly weighted to heads, like 90% to heads, 10 to tails. Like, why should you, if you were taking a bet, why should you bet on the one that's unfair for heads rather than the one that's fair? And he said, because you'd be a sucker. I said, you know, I know, but why would you be a sucker? Well, because you don't want to lose money. And said, so, like, just going around <laughs> yeah. and around, it's like, yeah. right, well, why would you use, lose money? It was, because it's the lower probability. I said, right, but why does that? Because, it the so case?
0: You, <laughs> Scott,
1: do you want to lose money? just my mother's
0: my mother's engagement, in my career, like is um at the beginning of every semester to ask me the names of my classes and what times they meet. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like,
2: i'm so relieved to hear this by the way this is like literally. i can i like, hear my mom writing it down on it like a post-it note
0: when like she yeah. like,
2: asks me like when i'm teaching
1: and i'm and like, I'm like why, why do you need to know we only <laughs> talk about I like, things like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, uh,
0: i, I want to push back on something kate said earlier kate said philosophy like, like uh it, it cast out on like the pragmatic uses of philosophy and um and I think like there, there's like questions in philosophy that I don't think have practical upshots, like Scott and I are like, uh, you know, interested in what law is. And I think that um, that question moves like pretty independently from lots of substantive questions uh, in law. And I, I've had conversations in the past with Kate, who was interested in like the, like the relevance of jurisprudence to a project that she was working on. And I was like, yeah, spend your time on jurisprudence. <laughs> but yeah, um, but never but, but that said, like one thing I hope to show through the book is like philosophy can provide like real useful insight into life. So like the chapter on revenge that starts with um, you know, like a kid at school calls calls my youngest tank a floofer-doofer. And uh, and actually you know, like, like, like this comes out like over the course of like a weird conversation where he says yesterday at school, Caden called me a floofer doofer. And then Kelly, his teacher, he said, Kelly, my teacher Kelly came to talk to me. And I'm like, well, did, did she talk to Caden too? He says, no. I says, Why not? He said like, she she came to talk to me, and it becomes quite clear, like through like his elliptical answers, that he did something to Caden after Caden <laughs> called him a doofer. But like he will not, he will not say what he did. Um, yeah. So <laughs> well, I I you know, like he he did not wither under extraordinary questioning. So I, I had respect for his uh, for his ability to maneuver the cross examination. Um, and it's but at some point I say to him. You know, Hank, did you, did you think it was okay to do something mean to Caden because he did something mean to you? And he just looks at me like I'm stupid. And he's like, "Yes, he called me a floofer doofer. And you know, so like the the like that chapter is about like trying to think like well, this is a pretty widespread impulse among humanity. Like, what's lying behind it? What is it that you accomplish when you do something mean to the person who did something mean to you? And then like once you have an answer to that in view, you can also ask like, are there other ways to accomplish it? without like violently taking revenge um so uh so like i wanted to i wanna i want to stand up for a little bit for like philosophy being something that often has practical significance
2: no i actually so one of the things that i think i said at the end of my um i think i said actually i i still actually do think that jurisprudence has something to do with my oversight board project I just was like, I'll get I'll figure out a way to ask you the question so you understand it. Eventually, (laughs) like, do you see red the way I see red? (laughs) But um, but um, no, I kind of like I think that there is um I think that if I I think that I tweeted once that I was like after like 9 years of, like I think that my life would have been a lot easier if I'd realized that I was like an empirical philosopher or like an experiential philosopher like a lot earlier. Like I just that was I just like knew that that's what I was doing. Um but no, I completely agree with you. It has both like pragmatic and practical kinds of things, but I think it also it's a circle. It like also is derivative of like um it, like, de- you know, it derives from like pragmatic and practical. I mean, the, that's the beautiful part of this whole book, like, honestly, right. which is that that is what the stories I think are doing, um, is that they are like showing exactly what you just said. And so like, I, I was, I was trying to decide whether to but I but I do think that people draw a line. And it's incorrect. I think they think that there is a pragma on the one side pragmatics, and then on the other side, and practicum and the other side philosophy. And I think that you're exactly right. I mean,
0: right. if Rex is right, if philosophy is the art of thinking, like thinking clearly is going to help you with lots of different sorts of problems.
1: Right, right. Uh, by the way, we just for everyone um, who, who are concerned, um, we will be bleeping out Flu for Um, the, um <laughs> uh, you know, Oh my but,
2: God, this isn't NPR, Scott.
1: <laughs> 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 Flu for um, that is.
0: It's very cute. Will, well, you know like, I will
1: never not laugh at, at-
0: <laughs> Well, at some point I said like on this conversation, Disguise. he's like different. he says daddy it's it's bad. And and I'm like, "Well, how do you know? Like should we google it?" And you
1: know, I that's uh, the
0: fucking uh, answer. Should we? Right, right, right. <laughs> what
2: kind of philosopher right. answer is that?
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> Well, that's how i answer the trolley problem right <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I i google it yeah that's, that's, that's uh, bad modeling bad out you're you're imparting algorithmic answer. authority um okay in the next so hold on version. i
2: have to read this question from daniel which is excellent um and is on point uh he can't come on the screen so i'm going to read it for him but daniel asks um philosophy is a series of footnotes to plato if you were to modify the famous whitehead quote how would you and i think daniel always with the great questions but yeah
0: yeah so actually i've got an answer to this so like one of my uh favorite stories in the book comes from the beginning of the chapter on infinity um when rex announces that the the universe is infinite and i'm like i don't know buddy like scientists disagree about that some think it's like like um, infinite, but others just think it's really, really big, but finite. And he's like, no, the universe has to be infinite. And then he makes me an argument. He's like, if you take a spaceship all the way to the edge of the universe and and you're you you like you're like right at the edge and you like punch and he like punches the air, he's like, your hand has to go somewhere, right? And I'm like, well, I don't know. What if, what if it doesn't go anywhere? And he's like, well, then you like something stopping it. So you wouldn't be at the edge yet and uh and it turns out this argument i didn't i didn't know this i, I knew why the argument's wrong actually did you just write this book to want.
2: tell us how smart your kids are
0: no because like, <laughs> because like all, all, kids, all, all kids are like this actually um we, we can come back to that but so one night like it was like not long after that i'm at this like party of philosophers and i was talking to my michigan colleague gordon Ballot, who's a philosopher of physics and i was like hey i gotta tell you about this argument my kid made which actually doesn't work Right. Um, we could talk about why it doesn't work if you like. But uh, but I told Gordon this argument and he's like, oh, he's like, that." that's a famous argument. Like the the first version that was made by this ancient Greek philosopher named Archytos, like a pre-Socratic philosopher. And then Lucretius made this argument. And even like Isaac Newton thought it was kind of a good argument. And, uh, you know, and like my joke in the book is like, you know, we credit to Archytas, but I'm pretty sure some 70 year old <laughs> thought of it first. And and so that, that's how I want to change. Friedman. Sorry. So that's how I want to change the footnotes to Plato quote, which is to say, like, uh, you know, like there's a conventional set of people that get credit. Um, But my guess is that most of the good thoughts were actually had by little kids at one point or another. Um, And it's like it's not like my kids are not unique. There was this philosopher named Gareth Matthews who spent um, had a similar experience that I've had with my kids like, um, uh, you know, just heard his kids over and over again, making philosophical arguments. So he dedicated his career to kids. He'd go to schools and he'd talk to kids. He'd interview parents and gather like stories of their kids, asking philosophical questions, making philosophical arguments. And like, he, he, and he he wrote a few books, actually, if you really want to like see lots of kids in action and not just mine, the book, they're not as funny as mine. They're not meant to be introductions to philosophy, but they're just like collections of kids engaged in deep thought and uh and are like are a full refutation of the idea that there's like anything special about well, they're downstairs and I'm talking loudly. There are things that are special about them, but not this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um,
2: Paula, I think that Paula's probably is wearing glasses, so she's not gonna I'm just kidding, Paula. That was a joke. Well, I'm trying it's to not I literally. I can't figure out the camera um after oh, like a okay. year and a half of you know zoom stuff i I can't figure it out um so you are bad at tech it's true i can attest to this
0: um
2: so my question is is like these kind of the like children part of this the questioning reminds me of hypotheticals that we have in class it's like the same structure of like pointing out like these super basic things that students don't realize until like you frame them in weird stories and everyone laughs about the very strange stories that professors make up in class. But something that it makes me think of is like, we have those things in academia, but we kind of gloss over those very weird hypotheticals once we actually get into the legal field. I don't see that outside of the academic world, that type of like mimicking. It was in your like, I read your Harry Potter paper, I saw that at the beginning in creating this like fantasy world, but it's kind of weird to do that in the actual legal field. And I wonder if you think it would benefit from kind of going back to like basics and beating down our priors.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting thought. I, I, just uh, an aside before I, I try and answer that. Um, I think philosophers have like a marketing problem, right? Philosophers talk about their thought experiments and then they actually argue over whether like, like, what are we doing when we do these thought experiments or we just like, testing our intuitions. And, and the answer is like, they're doing the exact same thing that lawyers call hypotheticals. Um, and, and the lawyers like, uh, because they, they don't use the word experiment no, nobody gets like <laughs> <upset>. <laughs> like there's something fake going on here it's like we made up a story right to work out the the, the, the um, consequences of our ideas in the context of this new story it's not it's not a weird activity philosophers have just labeled it poorly um, so um, you, you know so I don't know like when you go out and you practice law you um, you, um, you're still going to use hypotheticals, right? Um, in your, like, certainly in your conversations among other lawyers about like, what the but rules might You use might them in arguments
2: be. in front of a judge. I mean, I mean yeah. the best example is like in a criminal case, like this could have, like you present another, like an opposing theory of the case, like another thing that could have happened, right?
0: I think the thing Paul is picking up on is like, you're not going to get too distant from real life with a hypothetical because you're trying to, you're, you're trying to motivate a practical decision and so judges are interested in like if i decide this today what might i have to decide next week or next year or five years from now and so like a story which involves like a trolley that is like moving on a track and the track is attached to a lazy susan and somebody can spin like that's not the kind of thing that they're ultimately worried about and so your your um like the range of hypotheticals is maybe going to be narrower in court than it would be in a philosophy classroom, or even in a law school, a law school classroom. Now, does that sound right to you?
1: Yeah. I, 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 one of the weird things is, and this uh, uh, going back to the comment I made at the beginning of the program, um, uh, or when people want to belittle us, they call they call it the call at the beginning of the call. Right. I hate that. Um, but the 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 thing is that. Academics, like legal academics, philosophers, when they they think of hypotheticals, they try to take away all the details that are extraneous and just leave what they think are the normatively significant ones. Whereas when you're writing for a general audience, like you have to, you have to, was the person wearing a hat? What color hat was the person yeah. wearing? You know what time of day was it? You know what was it a trolley like? In, were they in San, San Francisco? You know, like yeah. th- that's a it's that, a, it's a completely different way of thinking about how how to write um, uh, for for an audience.
0: There's a moment in the book where I'm trying to present to my boys. This old like hypothetical from Kant, like if there's a murderer at the door um, and like you're hiding the person he wants to murder in your house, can you lie to him and say the person's not there? And so I'm telling my kids, I'm like, you know, you're, you're hiding someone in your house. And, and and like and like Ken cuts in. And he's like, "What's his name?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, like like his name <laughs> his name is like Jim." And I'm like, "And somebody knocks on the door." And Rex is like, "Okay, what's his name?" I mean, that's
2: amazing. I mean, I, but like, I I mean, it's also like, yeah. I I think that there is. What I think that one of the things like what what is your theory of philosophy that like why names matter in that context?
1: Yeah, yeah. Why? Why like do why? Why, like, why like do why?
2: kids like reason? So, so the other part of this that I think that that is like that I that I that I'm excited the book and maybe you talk about this and we have to wrap up in like five minutes. But like, um, is I have a lot of I I used to have friends who do cognitive psychology like adult like tr- like early de- childhood development psychology and cognitive science. And, like they're brilliant and they're Brown and Harvard and they're doing all of this amazing work. Um, and so there are some answers. What is kind of the relationship between empirics and philosophy in this way? This is something, so Jack Balkin used to say to me all the time, well, it used to be that philosophy was the, ha- or science was the handmaiden of philosophy. And then like now, science like philosophy is the handmaiden of science and i was like what's a handmaiden but also but i love so you know i love this question yeah
0: the chapter on infinity like offers a view as to like what the relationship between these fields are like historically like the sciences uh, are an offshoot of philosophy like you know, like one by one, like, is like new tools are developed for addressing problems that people just used to think about, right, then people specialize in whatever those new tools are, right, like whether they're, um, you know, like mathematical tools or experimental tools, Um, you know, but um, uh, the suggestion I make is like, look, like everybody in the academy like we're all just trying to figure things out using whatever tools are appropriate to the task and sometimes the only tools we've got that work are just like thinking about things really hard like thinking about the concepts that we use and how they relate to one another and that's full on a part of science so like anytime you hear a scientist like neil degrasse tyson sometimes does this you know like um other prominent scientists have like cast doubt on the utility of philosophy and every time i hear them do it i i just think like this is silly because You know, like your project, even like experimental projects depends on like at the end of the day, an argument that um, like this method of mucking around in the world is a way of capturing a kind of knowledge. And if you haven't thought that through carefully, the fact that like you do something in a lab does not save your work so like i would rather not see these things as antagonistic or handmaiden e in either direction it's just like we're all asking questions what are the tools that are useful for answering them
2: i yeah. love that answer i also just want to say i don't think jack was saying it in a der- derivative way or trying to say one was better than the other i think he was trying to say kind of what popularly <laughs> is like the trend over time <laughs> about how people think about these types of things not that it actually was but can, yeah.
1: can, can i make a very strong claim for the not just compatibility, but the essential partnership that the two have. So, yeah. So, for example, yes. uh, exactly.
2: all of my work is empirical, but in like, right. it's becoming philosophical. Exactly.
1: Right. 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 So, Chris, the thing is, um, so I've been involved in a couple of empirical projects because um, my co-author Owen Hathaway um, is adept at them, and we've used them. Um, and what I, what I noticed is that like when we would go over study or when we would do our own data collection and analysis is that um, uh, the the question was, how are you coding the data? Like what goes in what box? How are you defining what each box is? And I felt like that's literally what I do. Like, like what goes in what box? Um, and we're really good at it, like philosophers are that's the one thing we're really good at like oh you're you can have four boxes and like this box would be this and that's enormously important to like good um, data collection and analysis is having good boxes so i i actually think that they're really quite compatible
2: um scott this has been absolutely amazing um you have also you are blurbed by some of our favorite people who have also been yeah. on the show Emily Oster Jordan Ellenberg um, this is yeah this is just kind of this is amazing this has also been fun I feel like I could have you on every day to talk about your kids. They're actually if you need a babysitter. I'll let you know when I'm coming to Ann Arbor. I'll be like, okay, now say really clever things that I can write a trade book about. <laughs> i
0: like, well, tell you what, if you have a favorite chapter, like once you finish reading, I'll come back and we can talk about, uh, talk about that chapter.
2: I would really like that. I have a sneaking suspicion it might be the infinity one, Um, But it might also be the sex and gender one. And you know what I'd love to have you do is come on and talk with um, who's come on the show before. Um, Noah, oh my God, I'm just like about to forget his name, but he is a former, he's he's now an anti-doping, he's a former Olympic cross-country skier. Um, And he just graduated from Brown, which is my alma mater. And like, we have been close for some time. And uh, Noah Hoffman, there we go. And anyways, he was gonna, but he is really involved in this question. And I think he would benefit from a conversation with you. And he's like, like advising the, like helping on all the advisory committees for like the anti-doping agencies and like trying to figure out these lines and things like that. And so Anyways, it'd just be really fun to kind That'd of be put totally the philosopher advice. and the pragmatist together. And I think you would like l- love to hear what you have to say, so. Awesome, cool, let's do it. Yeah, that sounds great. The book is Nasty, Brutish, and Short. Um, we have, I'm gonna drop the link uh, one more time, go and and buy it,
1: it's, Scott Hirschewitz,
2: uh, uh, sorry.
1: Scott, yeah, so, so just while the link is there, well, people can click it, um, is to say, that Wednesday is Morel Day?
2: Oh my God, we're going Morelling. So we're gonna do the show again on Wednesday. So we'll be back yeah. on Wednesday,
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: May 11th. Yeah. And that will be 45 hours from now.
1: Yeah, something like that, gi- yeah. give or take. No, 47,
2: whoops, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I'm gonna wear my shirt that, that is that color and we're going to do this and we're going to it's we scott thinks it's the best morelling season in decades
1: right right in terms of just it's (laughs) the the precipitation departure charts are screaming
0: morels is this Uh, like a on location you film it while you're wandering the woods
2: oh scott how have you not heard this story scott (laughs) took me to new jersey last year we (laughs) Looked for morels all day in the rain. Found one. It turned out to be a false morel, and even better, was full of ants. Yeah,
1: and we uh, took
2: it to a small restaurant we found in New Jersey that had both a first communion and at least two bar mitzvahs happening yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And this ant, these like these ants came all over the table, and were loud and like trying to film this. And um, it was a pretty uh, incredible episode.
1: Yeah. I would yeah, wow. the, the, yeah, the 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 picture on my um, on my on Twitter, Twitter uh, on Twitter on my Twitter bio um, of me looking is the that a, yeah. we were doing we were doing the show from from that thing. So I hope either to do it from the field um, uh, or from that restaurant.
0: Yeah, it was. They're happy back. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm
2: a glutton yeah. for punishment and yeah. morels and ants. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Anyway, anyway, um, anyway. Uh, so we will see you in two days.
2: Scott Hershowitz, you're a great American. Thank you, you for coming on American. the show. And thank you for writing this awesome book, which I have. You've like cured me of all of my present giving for the next <laughs> for five copies of accidentally. <laughs> is. It's a great, wonderful. But anyways, also if you become a New York Times bestseller, that's definitely why. And you can thank yes. me and your
0: book. <laughs> <laughs> Can you click, like, another 5,000 times? it will be good. <laughs> we'll work on it. Right. I
2: will see you guys soon.
0: Okay. Bye-bye.
2: Oh, wait. We didn't do the ta- sign-off. Yeah, I can't do it. I, I... Oh, sorry. I fucked it up. Scott what's the sign-off. Oh, we're not allowed uh, but, to have fun anymore. But got um, fun.
1: We can have floofer-doofers. The band.
2: Perfect. Okay. Bye, guys. Post a mm ah.